On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Looked at John the Baptist and Jesus, how John the Baptist was condemning the people of Israel, was he was rightly judging them for their sins. All of the people of Jerusalem and Judea, the surrounding regions, were hearing his message of repentance, coming to the waters for a baptism for repentance, a baptism unto repentance. John the Baptist then, upon seeing Jesus, uh, attempts to object to Jesus and says, I have need to be baptized by you. We saw how John the Baptist, in saying this, is identifying with the sins of the people. And we looked at Isaiah, in Isaiah 5 and 6, how Isaiah is pronouncing woe after woe on the people of Israel for their manifold sins. There are six woes, and lest there be a seventh woe, and the judgment on the people be complete. When Isaiah sees the Lord in his temple, By the Spirit of God, Isaiah declares a woe upon himself. Woe is me, for I am a person who has unclean lips, a man of unclean lips dwelling among a people of unclean lips. John the Baptist, when he says to Jesus, I have need to be baptized by you, I think it's important to understand how uh, representative John is of the whole human race. Jesus says concerning John the Baptist that, Of all of those who were born of women, none has arisen greater than John. Now, we just talked a little bit about Enoch earlier in the Sunday school hour, how Enoch was walking with God and God took him. But Jesus says that of all those prophets which have come before, John the Baptist is the capstone prophet. He's the greatest prophet. And yet John the Baptist, in the light of Christ, when he sees him, he sees one who is pure, spotless, the very Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in seeing Christ, he sees his own defilement and sin and need for repentance and washing. He says, I need to be baptized by you. He does exactly what Peter does not do in the upper room discourse when Jesus takes on 
the role of the servant in acting in a visual parable, really the entire gospel, when he girds himself like a servant with a towel and begins to dip the disciples' feet in these jars of water for washing and then allowing them to actually come and behold him in this meal. Jesus, when he gets to Peter, Peter objects, saying, Lord, I'm not worthy to be washed by you. And Jesus then says, Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no part in me. And so I think it's very important that in this time of epiphany, moving from baptism, which was the very prior story, to this story, the wedding of Cana, interposed, of course, with the gathering of a few disciples, that we see a constituent part of the story, a very important part of the story, is the purification jars which are necessary to come to the meal. That's probably one of the most overlooked emphasis in this passage when when uh, pastors do treatments of the passage. And so I want to look at that as kind of the center point of the uh, the witness here that, that John gives. I love the Gospel of John because of its focus on Jesus and his fellowship with his brothers. But here we see Jesus doing a fellowship for the society or for the community. And we're going to look at a great detail about how important it was that Jesus did this miracle. It, it gives not only testimony to the importance of marriage, but also a societal justification or a putting right a wrong that was going to come on this couple. And then finally, we're going to look at how this feast culminates in a sacramental aspect. Jesus is not just doing this apart from a wedding feast. He's rather drawing attention to the final wedding feast by unveiling his glory here. This is what Jesus comes to do. He comes to put a marriage together, and namely that is forming a bride for himself, and we see that bride then married to our Lord. And so here, this is a prototype or a representation of the gospel in one form. Jesus sees a problem, is is moved with grace, and then goes and does something about that problem. So uh, immediately at the beginning of this passage, we have to discuss what marriage is. Marriage is the joyful and wonderful celebration of a particular, a particular event that is established by God. Uh, it's a covenant and an institution that's established by God. It is not originating in men. It does not originate in a man marrying a man or a woman marrying a, man, a woman. It in, is instituted by God, and that institution then drives our celebration of it. We don't seek to glorify or to tack on some good celebration on something that's actually terrible. Instead, we rather are informed by God. Genesis 2, 24 through 25, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. The reason God is saying therefore is because through the the mouth of Moses, who's writing down this passage in Genesis, he's saying that because of what God has done with joining Adam and Eve together, placing them into a garden, that they are then able to be this constitual union, a man and a woman. The man shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The teaching of marriage here is that one man, one woman come together, they're unified by God, And then there is a holiness to their nakedness. 
This is not just a nakedness which comes in an abstract sense that because there was no sin, but rather it's because they were rightly related in a union, a covenant that God made. And this covenant is joyful enough that when Adam actually sees his bride uh, in, in Genesis 2 right before this, he actually breaks out into song. The very first song in the Bible is not a song about God. It's actually a song about a woman. And this should begin to show us how great God loves marriage, how wonderful he sees it as part of his covenant community. And so God establishes the pattern, but it's helpful to understand that he doesn't just establish a pattern. He is involved in each specific marriage. The reason for this and the importance of this doctrine is then we know what is rightly marriage and what is not rightly marriage. There have been people who have attempted to lie to you and have attempted to get you to be complicit in that lie by instituting a so-called same-sex marriage, which I don't even use the term. I like using so-called or a better term, a more poetic term, is same-sex mirage. The reason why is because there is no union of man and man, and there is no union of woman and woman. There is only a union of man and woman underneath God. That is, man and woman have been designed by God to meet together in holy matrimony, and this is God's pattern for the world. But it's not just his pattern for the world. Every wedding we see, God is at work again and again. And he's not at work in those things which are not weddings. So we celebrate marriage because God has called it good and established it as good. He didn't just say that it was a potential possibility in humankind, and then after the fact, he comes and blesses it. No, rather, he made Eve for the specific intention of joining her to her man. And I think it's helpful to understand that Adam, the word Adam, simply means man. Man and wife are joined together here in Adam and Eve. And this is a prototype pattern. It's a thing that will be repeated throughout all of time. And so in responding, in celebrating a marriage, it's a response to God's joy. It's not a joy that we seek to baptize a marriage after the fact. This is why it's so important to understand what marriage is in a culture that is attempting to play God. And we should be able to see by the teaching of marriage in Genesis 2 that that is exactly what the Supreme Court is trying to do. Now, of course, we are not deluded, but rather we know the truth. First John says that we know that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. That's a pretty exclusive claim. If you ever have a temptation to put a coexist bumper sticker, just go read First John and then come back and see what you think after that. Uh, this, this teaching of marriage is vitally important because it forms not only our understanding of society, but it also forms our understanding of how we pursue marriage and also how we live in our marriages. We should live into the, in our marriages in such a way as to always be representing joy. And that joy does not come from us. It's not our attempt to make a better marriage, but rather to be a faithful representative of the God who celebrates marriage, the God who made marriage. And so... I think it's very important that Jesus begins his ministry. He unveils his glory to all of Israel through this event in the restoration of marriage. Christ's attendance of the feast shows something about his heart. Uh, my favorite aspect, oh, I probably shouldn't tell this because some of you haven't seen this movie yet. Okay, this is odd, and if you're not from our church and you're listening to this on the internet, 
This may seem weird, but is there anyone who wants to see Star Wars who hasn't? Okay, well, I'm sorry. There's only one. Probably my favorite aspect of monasticism is the understanding of closeness to God. And monasticism is usually not represented in our culture, almost ever. If it is done, it's done uh, usually by the Baptists or other Protestants who are accusing the monastic monks of the Catholic Church as being backward and dark and pointless. And so there's a very negative view of monasticism, and we kind of actually have just given that over. You know, the Buddhists, they can be monks, and we'll just be Christians. And But actually, Christians were, were the first religion to really have a, a calling of a monk. But one of my favorite things about the new Star Wars movie, uh, spoiler alert, uh, is that at the end you see Luke Skywalker living like a monk. And he's living like a monk in order to get attached to the Force or whatever. Now, I'm not saying you should live like a monk. I I don't think that any of you are probably called to be monks, although you are called to be devoted to the Lord. But one of the things that is bad about monasticism or hermetic life, uh, going away and trying to meet God in nature among, you know, just in solitude, the one the one thing that it doesn't understand is that God made people to be communal beings. They're relational beings. Uh, the Enlightenment began to think of men when they began to do what they called thought experiments on society. They always started with an individual man, as in before society is made, let's think about the individual person. But this denies God's original created order. In fact, people are not brought into this world except in community. Those of you who have had children recently may understand this quite well. A child does not come forth into the world except by spending time in his or her mother for a period of nine months, and then after that for years until they're able to live on their own. People are not islands. They're brought into this world by God's design to be communal beings living in relationship with other people. And I said all of that to just emphasize that Jesus, in his holiness, is not a stoic The Stoics were a group of Greek philosophers who believed that instead of being entrapped by the pleasures of the world, that they needed to attain enlightenment or a purity of of mind by detaching themselves both from pleasure and pain. The Epicureans, of course, they were ones who decided that we should maximize pleasure because life does have pain. And the Stoics said, no, no, life is full of pleasure and pain, and many pains are only the result of excess pleasure. And here, Jesus Christ demonstrates that he's not a Stoic. If you were growing up in a Pentecostal or or charismatic tradition, you may have thought that for Jesus' first miracle that he does to all of Israel, he should fast. And yes, Jesus did fast. We know that Jesus fasted in the period in the wilderness, but he did not fast in such a way as to demonstrate that as the caps or the beginning of his ministry. He does something publicly that is joy-filled. It's not as if Jesus needs to go and do war in the spiritual powers uh, in, in a way that is non-public. He does something that is public. He does something that is joyful. He does not uh, live like an ascetic. Jesus, in the beginning of his ministry, is testifying to the goodness of God's design in marriage and his goodness in creation. This is what Jesus is doing, highlighting the wedding as he does. Christ's life is a ministry of holiness, and that holiness is not fasting and praying and going off and spending time with God alone. Although those are constituent parts of the Christian life, that's not the whole. 
It's not even the major focus. Jesus is showing his disciples his glory in public by demonstrating his mercy on a couple at a wedding. Jesus does not refuse to attend. This is amazing to me, but when we invited people to our wedding, it's kind of our own fault because we put it right between Thanksgiving and Christmas. But we had so many people who lived in town and didn't come. And, the, you know, I don't fault them necessarily, but Jesus could have said, no, I'm too busy doing the work of God. I can't come to a wedding. I can't party. Some of you know Christians like that. Maybe some of you are Christians like that. You should see that Jesus is celebrating with joy in something that God is doing. It's right as Christians to have times of celebration. I see this the most when people war against celebrating Christmas and Easter who are Christians and they don't think it's worth partying about. I think it's worth partying about. Jesus parties and he makes a party continue to go on. So Christ partakes of the celebration and he guards it and he restores it. Now, earlier we had dis- discussed how this, these vessels were a repetition of this aspect of baptism, which we looked at last week. And so I want to look at that in just a second. Uh, but Jesus' action should apply to our life in this way, that through joyful celebration, we partake in God's covenants. And God's covenants are to be joyful. It's actually a judgment when you break the covenant that you move into despair and exile and depression and and a spirit of heaviness. Living in covenant with God should be living in joy because that joy doesn't come from you, it comes from him. And so if we are to celebrate with Jesus rightly, every once in a while we might have to smile. You know, every once in a while Jesus might laugh and that shouldn't upset your theology. So, uh, Mary sees a problem going on with the wedding. This is another just a anecdotal evidence. When you're at an event, uh, enjoy it. But if you're someone who's just on the fringes of being there, look around and see if you are needed in an emergency to serve. Uh, Mary sees the problem. She doesn't ignore the problem. Mary sees the problem that the wine has run out. And Mary then begins to engage with Jesus in this discussion. Now, just let me say right here that Jesus' response when he says woman is not offensive. It's, Jesus is not being disrespectful to his mother by calling her woman. Many of you try to be disrespectful to your mother by calling her woman. Don't do it that way. Jesus is identi- identifying her as a representative of all women in a poetic sense. Uh, he's identifying that this marriage, which he is going to eventually inter- intervene with, at first... I think that there's something very mysterious that we don't quite apprehend when we read it so quickly. But look at what takes place in this passage. Um, Mary, you have to remember, in our time in Christmas, in Advent, and also these first few years of uh, these first few years of Jesus's public life, Mary had been living for 30 plus years with promises in her heart such that eventually this one who she knew to be the Messiah was needed to be revealed to the people of Israel. He needed to have his glory unveiled and made manifest. And she had lived with these promises over and over again. In Luke chapter 2, it says that she treasured these things in her heart. Mary is meditating on who this son is, and she's longing for the day where he'll be revealed. He says in verse uh, 4, Woman, what does this have to do with me? 
And then by this phrase, I believe Jesus understands that this is actually an aspect of her request. He says, my hour has not yet come. Now think about that. If, if Mary is just saying, Jesus, I want you to go buy some wine. Here's a 20, go buy some boxes, right? Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. Right, you should, buy, you should always buy wine in bottles. <laughs> and not very large bottles, regular size bottles. Uh, you can buy wine in gallons at a time, and if you're having a big party, that might be the best way to do it. But the point is that Mary is not simply asking Jesus to do something on a natural level. And we know that by the way that Jesus responds. He says, my hour has not yet come. So Mary then says, immediately getting, you know, not rejection, but rather having her request denied, she then says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. (laughs) I think that there's a mysterious moment of faith on the part of Mary at this pattern. And the reason I think that is because of looking at the gospels in context. Jesus said concerning his own ministry, I never do anything unless I see the father doing it. In the verse prior, he says, woman, my hour has not yet come. And then Mary responds to that initial uh, denial of the request with faith. And she then says to the, uh, to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, I think it kind of plays out like this. Mary is saying to Jesus, do something. Jesus is checking with the father. Nope, nothing. I don't see any sign. And then Mary says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Jesus rechecks in with the father. Oh, something's happened. <laughs> Now, I don't think that's uh, dishonoring our Lord to say that. I believe that somehow on the part of Mary, she realized that something needed to be done. And he, I I don't believe Jesus is callous to the plight of this couple, as we're going to look at. This is actually a very serious situation for them. I don't believe that he was being uh, disrespectful in his response, nor was he callous to their concern, but rather over and over again in the Gospels, whenever Jesus is about to do something, he offers a chance for that person who really needs uh, a blessing to be offended. Uh, this, this happens with the, the woman who has a, uh, a child who is uh, demonized, and Jesus says to her, is it right to take the things which, are, which belong to the Lord's and give them to dogs? Right? Or is it right to take the things that belong at the table, again, a, a meal imagery, and give it to dogs? And she says that every once in a while there are crumbs which fall from the table. What great faith. I think that's what's going on here. Mary is a part of this moment. Her faith is exemplified as, as being wonderful. She says, do whatever he tells you, and then immediately we're just into the story. So, Mary's response of commanding the servants to obey Christ's command, it provokes God's movement. And I think Christ then is able to see this, and he acquiesces immediately. So Jesus' command then to the, uh, to the servants is not an accidental command. He chooses vessels which for, were for a particular use. It's not as if these vessels were just the only ones around right? These are vessels for purification. Now, now pay attention carefully because some people miss how important these particular vessels are. The wine which had run out at the party was in something at first. Yes? No? There were boxes or jugs, probably earthen jars, which had wine in them. And then the party had gone on for some time. 
and then they had run out of wine, which means necessarily that the containers which were holding the wine were empty. And so Jesus says to the servants, go get the vessels that are used for the purification. Go get the vessels that are used for washing. These vessels are specifically used for washing hands and feet before partaking in a meal. In that culture, uh, in our culture, we just have to wash our hands. Some of you don't even do that. Uh, If you come to my house, please do that. Uh, You have to wash your hands and your feet before you can sit down at the table to recline in the meal. Jesus chooses these vessels specifically, I believe, because he's intending to say something about them. Verse 6, there were six stone jars, stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Just hold that in your mind. We've either got, all you math wizards out there have already calculated, about 120 gallons or about 180 gallons, whether it's 6 times 20 or 6 times 30. Jesus said, verse 7, to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. Here Jesus is filling up the water jars which are used for purification. There's something he's saying by this. Verse 8, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Immediately after, Jesus says to take some water out of these jars. Then he says, now, now, take it to the master of the feast. The, import, the reason it's important to think through the aspect of which vessels they are is because some theologians who uh, are attempting to make the scriptures say something that it does not say assume that, well, there was wine in these jars and they just added a bunch of water to it. And so Jesus wasn't actually celebrating wine or partying or, or having a merry time. Rather, he made water that had a slight taste of wine about it. And um, anyone who's ever had wine would obviously say that's ridiculous. But it's also ridiculous because these didn't have wine in them. They they were jars for purification. They had water in them, maybe at the beginning. They, They take them, fill them with water, and then he says, now immediately go and take this to the master of ceremonies. I think that this is a repeat of what we looked at with John the Baptist last week. Jesus comes to John, and he submits to John's baptism because over and over again, Jesus in his life and ministry is identifying with our sin. John gave a baptism for repentance, and Jesus submitted to that baptism, not in any way saying that Jesus had sin, but rather that he was identifying with the sins of the people. He was made like his brothers, according to the book of Hebrews, in all respects, in all manners, in all ways. And so Jesus receives this baptism, and he upholds the authority of John. We looked last week at how true authority is not authority on its own, but it's rightly submitted to the authorities which God has instituted. And in this context, Jesus is a guest of these, uh, this new man and wife, this family, and they had appointed a chief of ceremonies, the master of the feast. A, uh, a chief of ceremonies is very different, or a master of ceremonies is very different from our common MC. This is not a guy who's in charge of you know, the music. He's in charge of, is the feast going well? And so Jesus is not just answering the concern of the couple. He's also answering the concern of the guy whose fault it is, essentially, for this moment where they've run out of wine. Now, he submits it to the master of ceremonies, and after that, 
we see an amazing thing which has happened about the wine. But submitting to the baptism of John, recognizing the authority that John had, is redone here. It's redone in that he submits the wine to the master of ceremonies in order for that master of ceremonies to be able to testify about the quality and excellence of the work of Jesus. This is a parable of what Jesus Christ is doing and does in his people. He makes excellent things. He makes great things. He does not make substandard things. And so he's not going to make a substandard you. The ultimate reason that you can trust that God will bring you about to greatness is because Jesus doesn't do things without excellence. He does things with perfection, and we see that through the master of ceremonies. I think it's important at this point to recognize that this is taking place on the third day. This is taking place on the third day, and it's tied with baptism by Christ's choosing of the vessels of baptism. But when we look at the whole context of John's gospel, he always uses the word the third day to refer to a death and a resurrection from death. In this very same chapter, in fact, actually in John, there are only two other places which use this idea of the third day. Here he says, in the middle of the temple, he says, if you destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. And then it says that they didn't understand this because he was speaking about his own body. It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. John 2, verse 20. Jesus is speaking about his own body. And he testifies, he prophesies beforehand, you will kill me, this temple, this tabernacle, according to John 1, which I, I've tabernacled among you. You will kill this body, but after three days I will raise it up. And so John is using three days to equal a resurrection. Likewise, when Jesus hears about Lazarus passing, Jesus waits two more days. So he hears about it on day one, he waits two more days, and then he goes, and he raises up Lazarus on the fourth day. There's a period of three days in which Lazarus is dead. And so on the fourth day, Christ rises him up. So how does this relate to the wedding? We talked briefly about how the, the running out of wine is a social tragedy, a travesty, on this couple. But here we are able to see by the use of the third day, John is attempting to in, invoke an idea in our minds that when we continue to read through John, we'll hear third day resurrection, third day resurrection. And by hearing John speak in this way, we might be able to connect this to the party that was going on. Running out of wine at a wedding brings extreme shame and societal humiliation on this brand new couple. Remember, God is establishing a new family, a man and his wife, to be this new atomic unit in his community. This central unit of God's covenant people was a man and his wife having children, raising them up according to those uh, laws and statutes, which we clearly read in the beginning of our Bibles, Deuteronomy chapter 6, teaching their children how to walk in the way of the Lord. And as this very moment where God is intending to bless and honor and publicly demonstrate the goodness of what he is doing in bringing this man and the wife together, a moment comes which brings immediate shame and humiliation on the people. I want you to think about this in a societal fashion. Uh, if they're poor, if these people are poor, and they just simply did not have enough money to buy enough wine, then this highlighted their poverty instead of covered it. Love covers a multitude of sins. And here their, their poverty, if they were poor, if that was the reason for the wine running out, it's amplified, it's made present, it's, there's attention drawn to it. You can just imagine if you were there on the day that, and partaking of the feast, you would have heard, oh, you can't have another glass, the wine's run out. 
and then the whispers start to run through the tables and then some people get up and leave and you know some of them are ticked off and I can imagine what it would have been like to uh, be at a wedding like this. They are immediately, if they were poor, if that was the reason for it, immediately it's drawn attention to. Now, on the other hand, if they simply did not plan for the number of guests, then they would have been demonstrated as foolish, either unable to count or unable to plan. And this would have brought in shame on the man in his, uh, in his role as this new leader of the household. And it would have also brought in shame on the woman's father, who was a part of this feast, who was part of throwing this feast. It would have brought public humiliation, not just on their family, but those who they were related to, not only the the father-in-law, but also the master of ceremonies. And so Jesus does this and upholds the value and dignity of this couple by doing something about it. This party was to continue for seven days, and at this moment, when the wine runs out, it's effectively over. It's over, and people are going to go home, and this new couple is going to always be remembered through the rest, at least for the next few years, if not the rest of their life, as those people who are poor or those people who can't plan for a party, those people who didn't honor their guests by preparing enough for them. Now, I'm not saying that it's right for them to bear this shame. I'm saying that's what happens in a fallen and sinful world, even among the people of God. Now, we should not be like this, but inevitably it's going to happen. Jesus Christ does something about it, and I think it's like a resurrection. No matter what the cause is, whether they're poor or whether they're just simply bad planners, Jesus resurrects the party. He takes a party which was dead, and he brings new life to it. It's a resurrection. It's a sign of what Christ does, and it's no surprise that it's tied immediately to wine. You've heard the phrase, the life of the party, right? When somebody shows up, a particular person, the honored guest, they're the life of the party. And when they leave, if you've ever hosted a party, sometimes you try to get that person to leave to shut it down. You know, if it's, if that person's really popular, you know, charismatic personality, connecting with everybody, networking, you want them to leave if it's too late because they're the life of the party. Jesus here is very literally the life of the party. He restores a party that was ended. He raises it up from death. And so not only is there a purification which needs to come about, but also this party needs to be raised up in new life. And that is exactly what Christ does through his water and through his wine. Verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. Now, I want you to see how great the resurrection that Jesus brings is in this passage. Again, there is shame that's coming on this couple, and Jesus does something that covers the shame and brings an honor. It covers the failure and brings a commendation. Jesus does something, and then they are publicly honored. The, the master of the feast, who would not have been giving toasts, who would not have been in the position of blessing the couple, decides this is important enough to interrupt the feast proceedings and to bless the couple. He says, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. Now, again, this is, this is a trick if you've ever thrown a party. You serve the night, you serve the champagne once, and then later on in the evening, you know, you move to Miller Lite. Uh, no offense if you like Miller Lite. Uh, I, but the, the point is, 
I have a friend who who only drinks Miller Lite, and uh, whenever he goes to uh, a few places in town, whenever he orders it, they then said, "Oh, a water." <laughs> it's it's funny. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. The master of ceremonies blesses the couple for showing wisdom, for showing wisdom in such a way as to have a better wine available. The party should always get better. The party should always get deeper. The fellowship among a group of Christians should always become more true, more real, more glorifying to God. The master of ceremonies says to these people who were about to incur incur a great shame, a great societal faux pas, and he says, you have done something that's unknown. You've done something that's commendable. You've kept the best wine for last. And for those of you who don't know anything about wine, I I myself don't know much about wine, but there are constituent elements of wine that make it necessary to see the lordship of Jesus Christ over this wine. And we're going to look at them in just a second. The, The changing of water into wine shows that Christ is Lord over creation. Not only did Christ, according to uh, the book of John, make the world, through him the worlds were made, but also he is Lord over it. He didn't just make it and set it into motion and it's going on and then he enters into time and then is limited by that creation. He shows that he is Lord over it, operating by the power of the Spirit, seeing that the Father is at work in glorifying this couple and showing the glory of Him, his son to the the people of Israel, Jesus participates and identifies his lordship over creation. By creating wine that is most excellent, Christ also shows that he is lord over time and lord over wisdom. If you've ever had a French wine from the region of Bordeaux, the reason it tastes good is not because the dirt is better in Bordeaux. It's It tastes good because for 400 years, families have passed down traditions of making wine. They have taught their children, and their children take up the family business and then continue on in the tradition, gathering knowledge and wisdom about how to treat grapes the right way. If you've ever wondered about how to make wine, there's a great documentary on Netflix called Psalm for a sommelier, and one of the things that they emphasize is the importance of harvesting the grapes at the right time. You can't let the grapes stay on the vine too long or else the sun will beat down on them and they'll become bitter. And if you let them freeze, let's say an early frost comes in, then it's trash. You have to throw the vintage away. Here, by making excellent wine, Jesus shows that he is Lord over perfecting time, that is, wine which is good, has been aged well, and it has also been made well. Christ shows that he's Lord over time and Lord over wisdom in this passage. And he also gives honor where shame was due. By bestowing honor upon this couple, Christ shows that he is Lord over marriage and human society. It is not in our power to declare that gravity be ended. That wouldn't work. It is also not in our power to attempt to reconstituate or to transform marriage. It, we, it can't be done. So, Jesus did these signs, and he did them in order to show his glory. And by seeing the purification which is necessary for people to participate in the meal, and also by seeing the wine which he brought about to continue the fellowship, we see some aspect of the glory of God in this. Christ shows his glory both through the water and the wine, and these point to baptism and the Eucharist. 
These point to how do we have fellowship as a people of God with God. Not just me individually, but also me and you and, and us as a people of God having fellowship with his son. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not merely a forgiveness of sins. Now, I, I know if you've been here a few weeks, you've, you've, you maybe remember how we saw it's not just a restoration unto a clean slate. It's also the bestowing of righteousness. But here it is again. And it's, it's important that we see God is re-emphasizing. Jesus doesn't just sh- cover the shame. He also bestows a blessing. The gospel, therefore, is the bestowing of a new life by which man is made alive to commune with God and to know those who know God. It's not only to commune with God, but also to be known by him and to be known by him in a community. And my question to you today is, is this real to you? Is this real to you in a way that you know that you've been put into a community, that you have been brought into a new family, namely the family of Jesus Christ, that family which has fellowship through the water and through the wine? Through baptism, we're brought into the community of God, and from that place, we then are invited into partaking at the table. And so the essential element of this passage is that when Christ makes a man new, he doesn't just make him clean, he also makes him glad. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We pray that you would forgive us for our hatred of a great gift which you've given namely wine, which your word says was given by you to make man's heart glad. Lord, we also ask that you would allow us to partake of it rightly, that we would not use it in a way that is damaging or abusive or, or which leads to dissipation, which leads to drunkenness. We pray, God, that you would give us a great understanding of celebrating things as a community, as those who are called by you to celebrate those covenants which you have established. We thank you, God, for the gift of marriage and the wonderful blessing that it is which creates community and brings about new children. We pray, Lord, that we would see Jesus Christ as one who is able to wash us, but not just wash us, to be able to make us joyful in his presence. We pray, God, that you would end all depression and all despair, that you would bring about a joyful gladness that we will know that you've invited us to your table. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.